from Meltem Demers and Jill Carlson. Welcome to What Grinds My Gears, a podcast about the bizarre and buzzworthy happenings in the world of cryptocurrency. Each week, we delve into one key theme and examine it through a broader financial, political, and cultural lens to learn from the past, understand the present, and explore the future. When people ask me how they can get some Bitcoin, there's really not a lot of places that I feel good about sending them. Well, have you heard of Voyager? Voyager is fast, competitive, and has great customer support. It's also 100% commission-free, meaning you don't pay unnecessary fees, and they support over 20 cryptocurrencies. What? You can sign up today at investvoyager.com gears to earn $25 worth of Bitcoin, or you can download the Voyager iOS app and register now. Okay, hold on. I'll be right back. Gotta go download Voyager. Thanks to our friends at Voyager for sponsoring this week's episode. All opinions expressed by Meltem, Jill, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Meltem, Jill, and guests may maintain positions in the currencies, assets, and companies discussed in this podcast. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events on crypto, Visit them at blockworksgroup.io. Who are you, really? We choose what we reveal about ourselves to people, generally putting our best side forward until we know someone better. But online, it's far easier to be selective, crafting a persona constructed from the best profile, images, and comments we can come up with. And while you may think this is a new phenomenon fueled by the rise of platforms like Instagram and Facebook, humans have actually been doing this since the dawn of time. So Julius Caesar may not have had Instagram, but he was curating a persona. (laughs) From the earliest of human history, anonymity has been a powerful ally to those creating social movements and seeking to drive systemic change. In this episode, we're going to explore our favorite myth, Satoshi, through the lens of social activism and outline the deliberate and masterful strategy that was used to launch Bitcoin into the world as a social, political, and cultural movement under the disguise of technology. Fall of 2008, there was a lot going on then. Obama had just been elected. Lehman Brothers was filing for bankruptcy. Melton, where were you in the fall of 2008? Oh boy. Uh, In the fall of 2008, I was sitting in the library at Rice University. Um, I was thinking about what I was going to do when I finished college with my degree. And uh, I thought I was going to go into investment banking. I'd kind of built my college career around that. And it was uh, really interesting when the financial crisis happened because all of my my friends who had gotten offer letters and signed offer letters at Lehman and Bear and all of these places uh, suddenly found that their their job offers were rescinded. Um, And not only that, a lot of jobs just evaporated because companies had to cut back. And so um, when I think about the financial crisis, it really impacted my group of friends and my peers in a very dramatic way because so many of us, I was fortunate I found a job and it ended up being really fulfilling and and great, but so many of my friends did not find jobs. Um, And so what they ended up doing is 
getting a master's degree, taking a gap year, trying to find an internship somewhere. It was um, it was a really uncomfortable time for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if I think about that time period as well, more than just the financial crisis comes to mind. I remember Obama getting elected. I remember I was in college at the time and everyone flooded out into Harvard Square. And for the most part, because I was on a college campus, we're really happy and really excited about you know this era of change being ushered in. Um, but then, as you say, when the financial crisis came along, sort of at the same time, there was also this real sense of disillusionment and also real fear. Um, yeah, that a lot of pervasive. fear. And it wasn't just Wall Street that was affected, right? You know, I had friends getting jobs in all kinds of other industries whose jobs were being cut because there just wasn't enough to go around anymore. Um, well, the other thing that people forget is in the financial crisis, 20% of Americans had their homes short sold, foreclosed on, or um, otherwise were sort of affected. So if you think about it, um, probably one in five of your friends, maybe fewer, but a, a lot of people were directly impacted or their parents were directly impacted. I was living in Houston and I was studying energy economics. So what also happened in 2008 is um, peak oil, right? $150 mm-hmm. a barrel. And so um, industrials, manufacturing, petrochemicals were hit really hard as well. And so there was sort of this new world order, this new reality that was emerging. And I think that's something we don't appreciate enough about the origin story of Bitcoin is there was this whole generation of people who thought that by going to college, going to the right schools, doing all the right things, they would be safe. But right. that's not and what happened. So let's let's explain why we're talking about the fall of 2008, because there was a lot going on then as, as we're discussing. And so you might be forgiven if in the fall of 2008, you missed the fact that there was a paper published on a kind of dark and not well-trodden corner of the internet called the cypherpunk mailing list. And that paper, of course, uh, was the Bitcoin white paper. And I think that the context in which Bitcoin was initially published is a piece of the story that is often overlooked as people talk about, oh, the technological breakthroughs and, you know, the, the, the advent of this new kind of money. Okay, but why then? And it's not just because all of a sudden there was some, um, you know, bit of technology that came to be for the first time. In fact, most of the components of the technology had been around since the 80s, right? And so it's not that there was some technological breakthrough that meant that now was the time for the Bitcoin white paper to be released. I have this theory, and I've talked about this with you. Our friend Dan Held has published about this in the past as well in his Planting Bitcoin series. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that we need to really take into consideration the fact that Bitcoin is not just a bit of technology, but also a social movement. And so I have this theory that it wasn't really about the tech, the timing of it wasn't really about the technology at all, but was rather perhaps Satoshi sitting there um, in his or their or her room saying, okay, wait a second, now is the time, you know, there's change afoot sort of politically. uh, There's this moment of economic crisis. There's this moment in which people's confidence in the way that things are run has really been rattled. 
And now is the time to introduce this to the world. Right. And I think, um, you know, one of the things you and I talk about sometimes is, are there really that many coincidences in life? (laughs) (laughs) And I think what you're getting at is this doesn't feel like a coincidence or mere randomness. It feels very deliberate. Exactly. a lot of intentional choices. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot is intention and why things happen the way they do. And I think when we look at the origin story of Bitcoin, there is a lot of intention there. Absolutely. And so let's get into that a little bit. So the Bitcoin white paper, as I mentioned, a lot of the technology components to this have been around for a while. And it was also solving a problem that had been around for a while. And very specifically, that problem is called the double spend problem. Um, And this was a problem in cryptography, in math, and of particular focus by this group of people uh, called the cypherpunks, who called themselves cypherpunks, still do call themselves cypherpunks. Um, And the problem that they were trying to solve is that if I have a piece of data, right, Meltem, so if I have a picture of us on my phone, I can send you that picture, right? I can send you that. Girl, you have hundreds of photos of us, if not thousands. I have hundreds, yes, indeed, on all kinds of mountaintops. Um, But so if I send you that photo, Melton, what do you have? You now have that photo, but really what you have is a copy of that photo, right? Because I still have a copy of that photo on my phone. Now, if I want to send you $20... That's a bigger problem, right? I can't just send that to you the same way that I can transmit data to you. Because if I'm trying to send you money or anything of value and whose value is based on the scarcity of that thing, then you have to know that I no longer have a copy of that $20, right? And so, of course, the way that we solve this today with Venmo and, you know, online banking and Zelle and all of these services is that we have these third party intermediaries. And that's fine for a lot of uses, as we've talked about in the past, but that's not so fine when it comes to me actually trying to send you cash. Um, And there are all kinds of things that I might want to send you cash for that I wouldn't want to necessarily use Venmo or PayPal or that I might not necessarily be able to use Venmo and PayPal to do. But so this is a problem that all of these groups of people had been working on for some time, 20, 30 plus years, and it seemed intractable. But then when the Bitcoin white paper was published for the first time, it seemed like there actually was a viable solution to it. Um, And so that's a little bit more of the context in which this all came about. Now, it's notable, though, that this research paper, this effectively math paper. Wait, but Jill, I I have a question. Was it written in latex font? Was it an official white paper, as we have now come to call it via the ICO (laughs) film? I don't think it was, was it? It was just an email. No, it was right? in, it was, um, it was in uh, what's like that web font that is the most basic font? It was in like a very basic font. It was not in the standard yeah, academic journal standard. latex yeah. font. For those of you who don't know, you know, the font you see in a lot of crappy ICO white papers, but also in papers on Arvix and um, on actual academic journals, they use a certain font. This was not that. This was very simple. It was only nine pages, which is short. 
Yeah, compare that to like the Telegram ICO white paper. But what we're getting at 123, here, 123 pages. Indeed, indeed. But what we're getting at here is that <laughs> it's notable that the paper was it wasn't published in some academic journal. It wasn't released by a university department or government agency. And in fact, it was released, as we all know, under a pseudonym, the name Satoshi Nakamoto. And, you know, no one on this mailing list had ever interacted with this Satoshi before. The author was coming out of nowhere, um, which, you know, again, we'll get into, I think was probably very, very intentional. Yep. And then that fateful day came um, three months later when somebody actually implemented the Bitcoin code and the first block was mined. Um, What's interesting is when that block was mined, it included a very specific... um, set of data, which was the headline from that day's paper as a timestamp. And Jill, do you recall the headline? Chancellor on brink of second bailout for banks. That's exactly right. And I think you can now uh, find people selling those online. It's kind of like a hot commodity in the Bitcoin ecosystem to have an original copy of that paper. (laughs) Have you seen this, Jill? I have, yeah, yeah, yeah. The People questions. are spending crazy amounts of money <laughs> on buying these, and actually, and, um, you know that that headline though it's worth noting. That headline served a couple of purposes. One was to prove that it was actually happening at that day on that day, right? Because you know that this is something that he couldn't have predicted, or she, or they, whoever Satoshi is, Satoshi couldn't have predicted what the headline of the Times would be that day. And so that was sort of the proof, the timestamp, right? But I think it was also a very clever bit of branding, wasn't it, Malta? Oh, absolutely. Because the other thing it did, um, so first of all, the timestamping was very clever. But the other thing it did is it really set the scene. And I think here, um, I want to go back to something Nick Zabo says about Bitcoin, which I think is really a helpful analogy. So um, the way the, the Bitcoin network works and the way Bitcoin blockchain works, what happens when a piece of information or a piece of data um gets written to the blockchain is it's like a fly getting trapped in amber, right? So when you and I are going to the museum and we see, you know, at the Natural History Museum, we see a fly from the prehistoric or prezoic, whatever you call it, era um, trapped in amber, there was a process that got that fly there. That fly first got trapped in the amber. And then over time, as layers and layers and layers of amber got wrapped around that fly, it became crystallized. And um, the thing that happened here is Satoshi not just crystallized that moment in time, but that the zeitgeist of that moment was crystallized. The mood, the why for Bitcoin's birth was crystallized, which I think is so cool. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm a huge dork. I just think it's really clever. And again, so intentional. And, you know, it's something that's left, of course, open to interpretation. You could just interpret it as, oh, this was arbitrary. There was no political message behind it. Um, But that's also part of the beauty of it, right, is because we don't know who Satoshi is, it is open to interpretation, which is why Bitcoin, the underlying technology blockchains, they often get compared to the blind man and the elephant, right? And yeah. the blind, the, the tale of the blind men and the elephant is that you have these blind men walking through the desert um, and they come upon something and they all start touching it and feeling it. And of course, you have 
one man touching the leg. You have one man touching the trunk. You have one man touching the tail. And they all think that the elephant is something different. Um, and that is very much, I think, how Bitcoin and, and blockchains are <laughs> Totally. But let's get into the actual strategy here. Um, and you helpfully um, gave a great talk on this topic. And you outlined five key factors in the strategy surrounding the release of Bitcoin. And by the way, it did not include any partnership announcements. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. I kid. I kid. All right. So do you want to lay out the five factors? Jill? So yeah, we'll, we'll rattle through these and we've touched on some of it already, but the strategy behind the release of Bitcoin included these five factors. The first one, of course, was the timing. The second was the format in which it was released. The third was the distribution strategy. The fourth was the creator, or at least the persona of the creator. And the fifth finally was the branding around it. And as we're saying, we think, I think that none of this was accidental. It was deliberate and it was a carefully planned release. And as we tend to focus on the technical innovation, which was significant, of course, we also have to realize that just as significant as the technical innovation was, there was a lot of brilliance in the way in which Satoshi launched it. So before we delve into those five factors, um, I want to quickly touch on something, which is the history of social movements and the study of social movements. One thing that's been interesting to me is looking at Bitcoin through the lens as a, of a social movement first and foremost. Um, so I'm going to quickly do Professor Meltem time. If you don't mind, Jill, will you indulge me for just a minute? By all means. Okay. Um, so look, social movements are purposeful, organized groups that are striving to work towards a common goal. So these groups can be attempting to create change. Think of Occupy Wall Street, which also came out of the financial crisis. Think about the Arab Spring in 2011, 2012. Um, they may be to resist change. There are movements against globalization. Um, the anti-vaccination movement is an example of another such movement. Or they may be to provide a political voice to people who are otherwise disenfranchised. Think of the civil rights movement. Think of um, the LGBTQI movement. Think of the Me Too movement. But at a large sort of scale, if we take kind of big picture view, social movements are about creating social change. And this is why I'm really fascinated by the Bitcoin origin story it is really important in our culture today for this reason. Um, typically, social movements are generated through feelings of deprivation, discontent. They typically happen when people are unhappy, right? And they catalyze revolutions. Revolutions are messy. They're painful because change is hard for humans. We don't like it. But people might actually join social movements for a variety of reasons that have nothing to do with the cause. Maybe they want to feel important. Um, maybe they know someone involved in the social movement that they want to support. Or maybe, just maybe, they just want to be a part of something, anything. Um, maybe they want to get rich. So what I want to ask our listeners is, have you ever been motivated to show up for a rally or sign a petition because your friends invited you? Would you have gotten involved Otherwise, I actually think the culture of Bitcoin and the aspects of it that make it so interesting 
is this social, political, and economic narrative. And it's really a um, social behavior phenomenon. So we're going to get into that. But that's why I think all of these choices were so important. Because if Satoshi had made minor tweaks, the end outcome would not have been the same. And it would have been very difficult for Bitcoin to catalyze into a social movement. A special thanks to our sponsors at Voyager. In the time it takes me to finish this sentence, Voyager will have searched dozens of exchanges for the best price on my crypto trades. If you want fast, secure, efficient routes to access crypto, check out Voyager. They even have a special offer for you, you smart and savvy listener. Sign up today at investvoyager.com slash gears. That's investvoyager.com slash gears to earn $25 worth of Bitcoin when you download the app and register. All right. So the first element of this was the timing, which we've touched upon already. Bitcoin was first released in the fall of 2008 at the nadir of the financial crisis during a period where people were talking a lot about change, social change, political change, and of course, inevitably, whether they liked it or not, economic change. Now, it's important to remember that the aftermath of the financial crisis led to a huge backlash, right? Occupy Wall Street. Occupy Wall Street came along, I would say, in the year or two years following. I, of course, remember this sort of most particularly because I, at the time, was working on Wall Street. And in fact, I was literally living on the street, Wall Street. Um, And I recall having to walk every day from my building, which was on the other side of the island of Manhattan, um, back across lower Manhattan, back across the financial And you were a dirty banker, Jill. Were you wearing a Patagonia fleece? I was. I wasn't wearing a Patagonia fleece. I think I was wearing like a theory suit and probably Ferragamo Look at you, fancy banker. But it was very clear what was going on. Well, this was this was back when I cared what I looked like. I was still, you know, one of the lowly kids on the desk and had to make an effort because that stuff mattered on Wall Street. Um, but it was very clear, right, that I was walking from my Wall Street job back to my literally on Wall Street apartment. Um, and I would get heckled. I would get shouted at by people who were protesting. Um, I would walk back through the park where everyone was set up. And then on Wall Street itself, the police actually shut it down so that people couldn't leave or enter except if you worked or lived there. And so I had to show them my ID card every night and a proof of residency to show them that I was actually going back to the apartment that I was living in. Um, And so, you know, that was the context, right, in which Bitcoin came about, in which Bitcoin was released. And so you can start to understand why the timing of this was so important and why that might have been so intentional. And I love to think of this idea that Satoshi woke up one day in September of 2008 as all (laughs) hell was breaking loose and thought to himself, all right, it's go time. There was a red phone and the red phone was picked up and the missile was launched. Okay, exactly. So here's my thing around timing that I also think is really important. And it's about um, education and awareness. Because one of the interesting things I go back to is um, there's really interesting idea 
in um, how the the Greeks ruled their society. Um, and that was that in order to have a um, well-functioning population, you needed a population who understood what good governance looked like, right? So the idea is that in order for people to um, be a part of a functioning, healthy system, they need to know what good looks like. So here was the big problem with Wall Street at the time. Nobody really knew how finance worked. <laughs> finance was kind of this black box and even people on Wall Street, right? What we learned through the financial crisis, like people didn't really know what they were buying, selling, trading, what their risk was, what their exposure was. We really didn't have any idea. And so what's so cool to me about the timing as well is here you are at this moment in time where an entire generation of people are learning how banking and finance works. And into that, you inject this new thing that introduces a new possibility. And what I think is so cool about Bitcoin is you now have this generation of entrepreneurs who not only understand a new technology, but they're actually having to go back Mm -hmm. and learn how the banking system works. And nobody's ever had any incentive to do that because it's really uncool and really unsexy. But I find it really funny that when you go to Bitcoin events and Bitcoin conferences, people are talking about hypothecation. People are talking about custody. They're talking about KYC AML. These are like the guts of a bank that even you and I working on the street, we would never talk about because it's boring. Well, but yeah, we exactly. I mean, I, I say this all the time that I was the junior kid on the trading desk. And for that reason, I had to deal with these issues, right? I had to deal with back office right. and middle office and all of these things. I got Basel three, which was the worst. <laughs> God. That was what came after the financial crisis. I got Sarbanes-Oxley, which was the regulation that was introduced as part of Dodd-Frank. And I got Basel III, which was the new global liquidity requirements for banks. It was pretty terrible. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right. So timing. I think we nailed that one. Let's go to the next factor. Factor two. Jill, hit me. Format. So these are all of the decisions that Satoshi would have had to make, right? When to release it, but then also how to release it. Because we have to remember, Satoshi was the first one to release a cryptocurrency white paper. This was well before the days of 2017 when suddenly it went mainstream where everyone, their brother, as you say, was publishing a hundred page document in latex font and asking for a hundred million dollars for it. Oh um, um, yeah. Now what is a white paper? Like that's a bit of an odd thing, right? Again, it's not quite an academic paper. Um, a white paper, actually, they started out as policy documents. The first use of the word white paper was in reference to policy documents around the British Empire. Um, now, of course, they've come to mean more than just policy documents. They've come to mean sort of memos, sometimes marketing materials. Um, but most importantly about them, they're generally viewed as proposals, right? They're not hard and fast law. They're not things that have been passed or that have come to consensus on already. There are proposals for the purpose of discussion. Yeah. And what I think is interesting here is um, memos and actually um, writing has historically been a way that social movements have started. Um, So if we think about, you know, Martin Luther nailing his proclamation to the church door, a lot of times... The 95 theses. Right? Um, So a lot of times social movements and social change has been a result of the spread of information. And so really, it's a question of mm-hmm. how do you spread and plant this, this seed by using information? 
And so um, what I want to touch on really quickly that'll be interesting for our listeners is um, in the 1930s, uh, there was a lot of writing and thinking that was done around the effective use of propaganda. And when I say propaganda, I think a lot of people today feel like that has negative connotations just because of the manner in which information has been used in the 20th century to substantiate all sorts of horrific world events. Um, But the father of modern propaganda is someone named uh, Bernays. And Bernays's book, Propaganda, I highly recommend people read it. It's an excellent primer on how to think about using information, how to think about messaging, how to think about format um, to disseminate new ideas. And so there is this really important aspect, all of these deliberate choices around what language is used. Satoshi used English, right? Mm-hmm. Didn't use Mandarin. Didn't, Interest, didn't use. Interestingly, he used a Japanese name. He, she, they. Um, I'm of the view that Satoshi is a they. We don't need to get into our speculation <laughs> around who. But yes, they used a Japanese moniker. Um, did you see that recent claim of this person claiming to be Satoshi who like, tried to make an analogy between Satoshi being the reference to like some obscure bank. I don't know. It's so ridiculous. Anyways, I did not see it's this. So I stopped following. Yeah, after Craig Wright, I was. But like, we'll get into creator in a moment. Yeah. We'll get into that Anyways, in a moment. But disseminating ideas is a really, really important part of propaganda. Um, and so I think there are a lot of deliberate choices that were made here. But this wasn't just about the idea, right? Because the white paper was published, but then three months later, Genesis Block. It was quickly followed up with code and the actual implementation, the actual product. And there's this important idea. So we've talked a little bit about the cypherpunk community, um, which was a group of activists, uh, primarily digital activists who really valued privacy um, and who were advocating policies, but also actual products that could put privacy first and empower individuals. And there's this important notion, there's this important slogan almost among this community that goes cypherpunks write code. And so I think that that was an important component of this as well, that it wasn't just ideas, as you say, it was also followed up with the actual code. I couldn't agree more. And I think um, the cypherpunk movement, it wasn't a cypherpunk's right code, by the way. Um, what Edward Snowden and others showed us um, is that cypherpunks also take action. What I think is really cool mm-hmm. is for the first time with Bitcoin, you can be a cypherpunk simply by transacting in Bitcoin and contributing to the Bitcoin community. Um, and I think starting on the cypherpunk mailing list, which was already a community that was anchored around the tenets of um, open source software development, a community anchored around volunteerism. Um, I think that was also a really deliberate choice, right? Absolutely. And so the cypherpunks were also integral to the third component of Satoshi's strategy in the rollout of Bitcoin, which was the distribution strategy that he took around it. And so we talked a little bit about the mailing list to which Satoshi posted this. So the the mailing list was the cypherpunk mailing list, which came around in 1992. So this was still pretty early days. And by the way, we talk about it in episode 10 um, on uh, surveillance capitalism, if anyone wants to go back and listen to it. Oh, you're so good. You always know the episode numbers, Meltem. My memory is um, good for now. (laughs) So Meltem, what was the cypherpunk mailing list like? What was it used for? What was the conversation on it? You're a bit of a cypherpunk. I don't know if you went on it prior to the Bitcoin release, but... 
No, I didn't. I didn't. I had no idea this world uh, existed because like you, I was wearing suits and working for corporations. <laughs> um, I'd never really been introduced to any other way of thinking, which again, just on my own personal journey makes Bitcoin so interesting because it was a catalyst for the whole other set of questions that I really needed to be asking myself. Anyway, Cypherpunks, 1992, um, mailing list was started. Um, and really the idea was throughout human history, people have um, had secret societies, people have conveyed secrets, people have started social movements in the dark and hidden corridors. But for the first time with the advent of the internet and the advent of encryption technology, there was this new tool we had um, to enable communication, collaboration, privacy, secrecy on the internet. And so the cypherpunks really started as a response to attacks from governments on encryption technology. And the intent was to write code um, and to take action to preserve the um, access that we had to this new technology, encryption. Mm -hmm. That was it. That's where it started. And by the way, that mailing list, um, if you go to the Cypherpunk mailing list site, and if you go to the Bitcoin Wikipedia page, um, which oddly enough, I can't access because I'm in Turkey, oh, <laughs> which is interesting. What about on IPFS? <laughs> I have not. I tried that recently, but I didn't try it today. I wasn't that desperate. But anyways, <laughs> if you go to the um, to the Bitcoin Wikipedia page, it'll actually show you who on that original cypherpunk mailing list ended up being active in the Bitcoin community as well, which is pretty cool. But on that mailing list, Jill, do you want to talk a little bit about the predecessors to Bitcoin that were already being discussed? Yeah. And so, you know, I think a lot of people, they hear about Bitcoin, they're like, wow, like this was the first time anything like this had been tried. But in fact, there were predecessors, as you say. So there were these other ideas Amongst them were Hashcash, eGold. There were all of these iterations of what this might look like, but they were all missing this one thing, which, as I say, was the decentralized property of it that allowed for the solving of the double spend problem. And now Nathaniel Popper wrote a great book on this, Digital Gold. If you're interested in learning more about the history of it, um, I would recommend that. But a gentleman by the name of Hal Finney, who had been doing a lot of this work, was the first one who picked up Satoshi's email and really responded to it. Importantly, a lot of people on that mailing list, even, even this sort of niche community who'd been thinking about this for a long time, when they first saw Satoshi's email, they dismissed it. Um, but Hal Finney picked it up and ran with it, and the rest is sort of history. What I want to talk about here in distribution strategy, um, again, I want to go back to how social movements spread, right? Mm -hmm. And typically the way movements start is they start out really localized with a really staunch group of believers, right? Um, maybe a good analogy to use is religious movements, right? Or new religions. Mm -hmm. There's typically a group of core believers who are already indoctrinated into a specific mental model or specific way of thinking who are going to be more susceptible to this new ideology. Maybe they're really disenfranchised, right? Maybe they have some of those characteristics we talked about at the start of the episode. But that's what Satoshi did here. They looked around and they said, where could we put this? What local community could we embed this in that will pick this up and that will preserve the principles of what we're trying to do? Exactly. And the cypherpunks made a lot of sense. So it starts local. Then by the time I got involved, it had become regional, right? And the way I really got involved um, was through the online community. Um, I was like into gaming and 
RPGs, etc. There was a lot of chatter online in different sub communities. 4chan, which I know is something we don't like to talk about, but <laughs> 4chan for a long time was actually a really important part of Bitcoin culture. Um, sites like BitcoinTalk.org, um, Reddit, they became gathering places. Um, IRC was where a lot of the chats were happening. So it became regional and started to spread outside of this little local group to a broader group. And then it started to become global. And so the stages of Bitcoin development and Bitcoin's growth as an idea really mirror the way that a lot of social or religion, religious movements pardon, um, will grow. The other thing that I want to bring up here in terms of distribution strategy is the place where it started um, was informal and loosely organized. And I think this is also really important. I actually uh, spent a lot of time in 2015, 2016, 2017 engaging with um, the Bitcoin core community. And there were a lot of challenges challenges around leadership um, because the whole point was that this movement was not supposed to have leaders. There was not supposed to be anyone in charge. So first Satoshi stepped back, handed the reins to Gavin Andreessen, who became the maintainer of the Bitcoin core um, code repo. Then Gavin stepped back and then it really maintained this sort of very loosely organized structure. Um, and the cult and the myth of Satoshi was able to keep the Bitcoin community together in its darkest times precisely because it started somewhere that was already leaderless and already embraced these ideas of not having structure, of not having bureaucracy, of not having committees and entities. And so I think that was also really deliberate because had it gone somewhere that was more centralized, more structured, more formal, it would look nothing like what we have today. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Choices, they matter. And so, you know, you're comparing, you're making this comparison, which I think is very apt to religion. There's another comparison to be made with religion here. And that is, that brings us, I think, to the fourth factor. So we've covered Satoshi's timing, his format, his distribution strategy. And that brings us to the creator, to Satoshi himself. And again, I think that the comparison here to religion is very apt because in many religions, not all, but many, there is an origin story, an origin myth, and there is this notion of a mysterious creator who is all-powerful or all-seeing and and has a sort of preordained plan in mind, which I think is often, again, not always, but often how Satoshi is viewed and treated by many in the Bitcoin community. So, so let's step into this. So there are um, two, maybe three things I want to talk about. So first is um, pseudonymity slash really anonymity in this case. Um, I want to talk about why the anonymity of Satoshi is really important. And there are a few different things we can talk about here. Um, the other thing I want to talk about is the importance of pseudonymity slash anonymity in history. And then um, I want to talk about religion and um, religious doctrine because I think that's also a really important component of uh, pr making Bitcoin socially scalable um, without a leader. So let's start with why pseudonymity, why anonymity? And you have a great Banksy quote, Jill. Yeah, that's right. So Banksy, I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with the artist. Um, he has created 
many incredible works. Um, often he does them sort of guerrilla style, breaking into museums or going to. And by the way, his work is also a reflection on modern capitalism. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> but so Banksy, he goes by a pseudonym himself. Um, still unknown to sort of the general public who he is. He says, if you want to say something and have people listen, then you have to wear a mask. And I think that that's very applicable, of course, to Bitcoin. And, you know, there are many uh, sort of political reasons, cultural reasons, but also psychological reasons why people want to wear masks. You look at Tank Man. So, you know, that famous image of the man standing in front of the tanks in Tiananmen Square, stopping them, right? It's actually still unknown who that is. And that's, you know, that's a very clear sort of political reason why he might want to hide his identity or why he right. perhaps hasn't come I mean, look at, to claim that. Look at what's happening in Hong Kong, right? People mm-hmm. are wearing technology to obscure their um, faces um, to make it impossible for facial, facial recognition technology to tell who they are because uh, they don't want to be tagged. So what I want to talk about here is um, the importance of anonymity. And this was actually a very important part of the cypherpunk ethos um, on that original message that was sent to the mailing list when it was created. Anonymity is a central feature of liberal democracies. We have secret ballots. Campaign funding is secret. Publishing political texts historically has been done anonymously or pseudonymously. Protest is done when you are masked. Graffiti, which is what Banksy engages in, is Mm -hmm. done in the cover of darkness, in the cover of night. Um, It's a self-explanatory concept. If you want privacy, if you want to do things that are subversive, you need to be anonymous, right? Mm -hmm. And so the relationship between anonymity and democracy is one that we don't talk about enough. Um, Because for most people, and I identify with this, I've I've never been a political person, really. I've never thought of myself that way until I got into Bitcoin. I was like, wait a minute, everything I'm doing is so deeply political. And the big question we have now is, can you launch a cryptocurrency successfully and be known? Can you even run a subversive platform or subversive technology if it's known who you are? Mm -hmm. And so there is um, this sort of interesting set of tensions because anonymity allows for Inclusion, exclusion, right? Subversion or submission um, and honesty or deception. So the ability to be anonymous, pseudonymous is a really important component of not only the creation story of Bitcoin and the story of Satoshi, but also to how Bitcoin functions in and of itself. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we see this, though, again, sort of throughout history with all of these political instances. The Federalist Papers, I think, is another great example of this, where Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay published this collection of 85 articles and essays, but they did it under the pseudonym Publius. Um, And they were promoting at the time the ratification of the U.S. Constitution, um, but they weren't doing it under their names because that might have politically charged both them as individuals, but also their statements. So again, you know, if you want to say something and have people really listen to you, and also in a way, leave it open to interpretation, then you have to wear a mask. Totally. And the second piece here, um, religious isolation, right? So the Mm -hmm. fact that nobody knows who Satoshi is, what his, her, their intentions were, it allows all of us to be Satoshi, 
right? And I think this is sort of similar um, to religious doctrine. If you think about uh, the story of Jesus, we have a myth. And because there is room for interpretation, what it allows is for people to create their own narratives and subsects um, of interpreting the words of Satoshi. And there are whole forums and blogs dedicated to analyzing um, Satoshi's comments on Bitcoin talk, right? which I think is really interesting. Like people are studying, and I think in the future, people will study the words of Satoshi and argue their interpretation and we'll see different sects emerge as they already have during the block size wars. Um, now, you know, with the advent of lightning, the argument of, you know, is Bitcoin store value? Is it payments? There is a lot of really interesting um, religious parallels to what you can do when your creator, when your, uh, your idol is anonymous. Exactly. It allows for creativity. So there were some practical considerations, I think, around this idea of pseudonymity. But then there are also these sort of other elements of, you know, why did he choose the name Satoshi? And and we can, I'm sure, wax on about that for days of these various conspiracy theories um, and some of the history there where there was a man named Dorian Nakamoto um, who got linked to the project at one point. And that whenever you see the quote unquote image of Satoshi, this this Japanese gentleman um, that is generally who gets shown in you know on the slide deck or or in the memes etc. Uh, that of course it has been basically proven at this point that that was not in fact Satoshi that he was just sort of this innocent bystander who got dragged into it. But there is also just all of these other elements of why that name, um, you know, to go along with this theme of why did he distribute it the way he did? Why did he choose this format? Why did he choose this timing? And that, I think, leads us into this final element of branding, right? Because the very choice to be pseudonymous and the very choice to call himself Satoshi Nakamoto, the choice to be a man, the choice to be Japanese, etc., that all feeds into the branding. But there's another element of the branding that we touched on at the very beginning of this episode that I think is far more important than that. Right, Meltem? Absolutely. And that is the first block, including the the headline from the day's paper. Brilliant marketing. Brilliant. It captured hearts. It it captured hearts and minds. Um, So, Let's sort of wrap this because I think there's a a lot we've talked about. Um, At the end, right, at the end of all of this, the end of all of these deliberate choices that were made, um, here's where this leads us to, in my view. The goal of Bitcoin was never about accomplishing a technical implementation. It was about driving a larger larger part in social, political, and economic movement, and introducing a new system. And um, if we look at causes of social change throughout human history, there's really three primary causes of social change. One is technology. And here's, you know, a perfect example of technology. But think of the printing press, right? Uh, Think of the automobile. Think of uh, fire, right? (laughs) Just to go primal. (laughs) 
the second is social institutions. So the introduction of new social institutions, which I would consider religion a social institution. So each time a new religion is introduced, um, the advent of science during the Renaissance, right? Uh, The recognition Mm -hmm. um, that the earth did not, uh, was not the center of the universe, that we revolved around the sun. Copernicus, you know, was not hung, (laughs) which his predecessors (laughs) were. So social institutions and changes in social institutions. Um, And then the last one, the third one is population composition or demographic shifts. And um, there are a lot of examples of that. But here, what we're really looking at, the causes of social change, we're using technology as a tool to start to change social institutions, in this case, central banking. What do you think, Jill? I think that's right. I think that if we look back at all of these big inflection points, these big moments in history, I love that you draw upon the scientific revolution, the Renaissance, uh, but even more modern examples, you know, I would say that Occupy Wall Street is a candidate for one of these moments in history, and then Bitcoin along with it. It's It comes down to, I would argue, usually a combination of all three of those things, of technology, of social institutions, and of de- demographic shifts. And we certainly have all three of those happening here in in what we're talking about 100%. The other thing that um, I want to bring up here is, number one, um, there is a very real possibility in my mind that Bitcoin was in fact a Trojan horse. (laughs) This is, get out your tinfoil hats, everyone. (laughs) Do you have your tinfoil hat on? (laughs) All right, they're out. They're out. They're out. And this will be your final note. Tell okay, us, Melton. So, so look, um, I call this like the blue pill, red pill idea, right? Um, we have this idea that we're taking the red pill and we're truth and freedom and self-sovereignty and it's going to be painful, but it's worth it, right? We're all Neo in the matrix. Um looking at Morpheus, we're like, oh, am I a red pill or blue pill person? The blue pill is like, oh, live in ignorance, but be blissful. Um, it's the the Hobbesian idea of trading uh, security for freedom, right? Mm-hmm. What I think is interesting, there's a very real possibility that an intelligence agency created Bitcoin, propagated Bitcoin in this deliberate way in an attempt to uh, basically create totalitarian panopticon surveillance money. Because if you look at how Bitcoin can be utilized, it can definitely be utilized in that way. And if you look at how the dragnet around uh, cryptocurrency is tightening, if you look at what's happened to people who've engaged with cryptocurrency, um, you are sort of, you know, identifying members of the population who have revolutionary tendencies, and they're all shouting about it on the internet. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, maybe I'm... I go back and forth, but I think there is a very real possibility that we believe we took the red pill, but in fact, we took the blue pill. And what we're propagating is not a new system at all. It's more of the same, but we are the um, proponents. We're going to be the agents that help governments get this done because they couldn't do it if they tried to implement it on their own. And so this is what I I love about all of this, right, is it is so open to interpretation and you can decide how deep you want to go, whether you want to live in Inception Dream World Layer 3 with Meltem or whether you would like to join me in perhaps a more superficial understanding of what it all is, Uh, but an interesting one nonetheless. Um, It really is. To be fair, Jill, those are my late night thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) It It is almost 8 p.m. here. (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, we will wrap. But 
I'm so glad to be back in action on this. And um, we'll see you next week as we're discussing, what is it, the history of banks? We're going to talk about banking. Uh, yeah, we All have right. a lot of From fun. From Banksy to banking. From Banksy to banking. Let's do it. Well, hopefully this was fun. Um, Jill, I'm sure you and I are going to have many more conversations over the coming decades about the myth of Satoshi and who and what and where and why. And uh, who knows, maybe someday uh, Satoshi will come back to impart more wisdom on us, but I'm not holding my breath. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, this is Jill and Melton. Thanks for joining us for another week of What Grinds My Gears. We love hearing from you, so please hit us up on Twitter, send us feedback, join the conversation. Follow us on Medium at What Grinds My Gears, where we share a summary of each week's episode, references, reading materials, and of course, memes. Our episodes go live weekdays at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. And if you're a crazy person like us, make sure you subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode and get it in time for your morning commute. Share it with your friends, or better yet, share it with your enemies. Thank you so much for listening. We love you, and we'll see you next time for What Grinds My Gears.